All right. As you made your way there, let's pause and pray. <clears throat> Our Father God, we're in your presence this morning because you promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So we believe, Lord, that as we open your word, you may speak to us truth and life, that you may let us see light in your light, that your grace may be upon us, even your mercy in this hour, Lord, as we come before you um, unworthy of the calling to which we've been called. So, Father, use your word now and make us worthy. We thank you. Lord, that you have promised to build something that you've brought us into, and we have faith that you will complete that work. And so, Lord, let us see this morning how glorious, how powerful it is to be a part of your body. Let us feel privileged and humbled, glad, thankful to be brought in, from outside, and Lord, let that overflow to call more of your lost sheep in. So Lord, bless your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church membership. As we detour here from our regular exposition, line by line, we're going to look at kind of a biblical theology of some important things, and today is church membership. Do we know each other? Is, is this a biblical idea? What's the big deal? In the way that we view church membership as formally putting a name on a role, is that something we should be doing? And what is this? And why is this? And, I, and I'll give you this. Just as the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, but is certainly the idea of who God is, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, much is the same with church membership. We kind of have to back up and investigate the nuts and bolts of why the early church is what it is, and how it is what it is, and why it's doing what it's doing, and how it knows each other. And so you have church membership all throughout the Bible, and we're going to get to this at the very end, but I'll tell you up front, church membership is crucial the gospel proclamation for us as a church. I have to know who's under my care. You have to know who you're responsible for in this body. And we all have to know who we answer to, which would be Jesus, the head of the church. We just had this discussion in Sunday school. There, there is no pope or man who is head of the church. It is Christ and him alone. And this is his body, the only institution that he promised to build despite the fact that death or the gates of Hades is trying to prevail against it. It won't. So if this is his, if this is in fact what the scriptures call blood bought by him, purchased by him, if this is the gift that's going to be presented to him at that great and awesome day, of that marriage supper of the Lamb, if we are the pure and spotless bride that he is to receive, then this thing is as, uh, of utmost importance. I first caught on to in investigating 
what the church is, why it is, who's involved in the church, what are the different pieces of the body, uh, when I was first converted. I was finally, uh, it was normal for me to attend church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, and I was investigating, why is there a pastor? Or pastors, there should be. Why is there deacons? What is this gathering about? What, what, what in Scripture, what direction from Jesus do we have about all of these things that we see when we come together? And to my delight, it was, it was beautiful to watch through the Scriptures, Jesus and the apostles unpack what and who we are. To give further strength and a foundation to this beautiful thing that we call an assembly of God's people. That this is not to be forsaken or taken for granted. That everyone here is precious and a part of the body in their own unique way. That not one person is able to be a hand and a foot and a knee and an eye. But that we all have a part to play. And that in those parts we have to play, that we have help and encouragement and support. We even have accountability in our growth in Christ's likeness, in his holiness. We have people we can lean on. We can, we can let go of the facade that we can do this by ourselves, that we will grow into Christ's likeness all on our own, in our own living room, in our pajamas. But we can sort of let our hair down and come to this kind of cliche idea of hospital for sinners. We can admonish one another. We can give to one another. We can pray for one another. We can disciple one another. We can do these things that are somewhat supernatural, definitely unnatural to us as humans, and we're all different. We all come from these diverse backgrounds and personalities and families and cultures. And somehow... It all gets put together in a, in a unifying way. And, and so you have to be severely interested, intensely interested in what you're involved in if this is Christ's body. It's crucial to your growth. And I would argue that apart from it, you can't grow. It's, it's the idea of when a sheep gets separated from the rest of the flock, he's easy prey. Everybody here has either spent time on YouTube or, or National Geographic and has seen what happens when a pack of wolves is going into a herd or a pack of lions is going into a herd. And what are they looking for? They're looking to separate somebody out. And, and where you see victory um, in those flocks that the wolves go into that they put the weakest one in the middle right and the rest of them surround them and they're guarding them and they're ready to fight this is guys this is the idea of the church this is God's creation with built-in illustrations in the world of how we exist and operate as his body so it's extremely important that we realize that we have to be together in this and so I want to investigate this morning how we no, we're together. How do we even recognize that? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm not going to trick you with this, but I'm, I'm going to do something with this passage that um, I wouldn't normally do. 
I'm taking Hebrews 13, 17, and, and we're laying it before us, and we're going we're gonna to ask how we even know what this verse means. By getting into the, the foundation that you have to have before you read something like this. So we're not going to pick apart Hebrews 13, 17 like normal. We're just going to try and investigate how we would even understand what this is, okay, by getting to the background of it. So Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give, have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the first question we have to ask when we read something like this is, who am I obeying? Are you obeying the pastor down the road? Are you submitting your soul to their care? What about somebody in another town? Is that, is that who you're obeying, submitting to? Shouldn't you, shouldn't you like to know who it is uh, that you have to submit to? How, how are you going to obey this if you don't know who they are? Well, he tells us your leaders, those in charge of your soul, where, where you invest your daily life and your spiritual well-being. You obey with the idea that the course of action is biblically accurate. That's what that word obey means in the Greek. It's assuming you're obeying because the direction is true. And I want to show you this. They, those that you obey, are in every local church. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, that's pastors, elders, bishops, same word, same thing, and deacons. Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, assembly gathering, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, pastors. So they're in every church, every local gathering. There are those who are keeping watch over your souls. There are those who are leading in the things of Christ with him as the head. Not them as the head, but him as the head. Those are who you obey. Those are who you submit to. Those are who are taking care of your soul. Now, why are they there? Well, when it says in verse 17 of Hebrews 13 that they're keeping watch over, that carries with it the idea of not only watching carefully, but watching to the extent that they're unable or unwilling to sleep. They are, they are intent on watching over every aspect of your well-being. And anyone who's ever served in this capacity understands uh, that sleeplessness comes to you when you care for a people that much. Listen to Paul. Listen to the anxiety that Paul expresses over the churches in his letters. His deep, gut-wrenching care for them. We have the letters, the epistles to the churches because Paul cares for them as one of these. And, And that's why he tells Titus and Timothy to appoint elders there so that they can care for them specifically. And as he's doing his mission work, he has certainly been kind of tied together with these churches that he planted in this 
spiritual father type of way, and it causes them to lose sleep because how they're being persecuted, how their faith is being tried and tested, and he is there to encourage them, to give them strength, to bring them the truth. He cares for them. That's why they're there. They're not there to lord it over you. They're not there to make a fortune off of you. They are there for your souls. That doesn't make you their boss. It makes you in their care, which is a comforting idea. I mean, just meditate on that for a second. To have not just someone, but someone's, plural, watching over your soul. That's encouraging. What, what would a flock of sheep feel like if there's no shepherd to protect them from wolves? A scary place to be. Listen to what he tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3.17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Here is the interesting idea in, in how God expects shepherds to watch and protect the flock. It comes from the Garden of Eden. Because he tells Adam, right, to keep the garden and guard it. With what? Well, all he's given him is his word. There's no threats. To, known to man at that time, especially not from other men. So how can Adam guard it? He can only guard it with the truth. And that's what he's telling Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 3.17, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, give it to them. That's how they're protected. That's how they're helped. That's how they're blessed. And read Lamentations. When, when shepherds don't do this, wow, uh, God's not happy not happy for what he sees happening to his sheep. Now, this is how my train of thought works. Who put them there? <laughs> did, did these people just assume a place in the church? Did they just say, hey, you know, I see an opportunity here to rule, be in a place of importance. Um, I'd like to take that opportunity. No. Jesus put them there. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Well, going back there, but it ends with this way. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint from which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's why they're there. That is the theology of why they're there. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And finally, Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. That's why he put them there. Because this thing that he purchased with his blood is that important. To leave it alone, to leave it without care, to leave it without somebody who is daily watching over them is not the carelessness that Christ is a part of. He put them there for that reason. Now, who are they, those pastors, elders, shepherds, giving an account for? We read in verse 17 of Hebrews 13 that they are those who will give an account. That can be a terrifying reality for someone such as me. That I have to account for what happened under my care with your souls. This is one of the weak points of our church, is you have placed this or recognized this only on one person for this many souls. That's an impossible task. That's an unbiblical task. You always see a gathering and a health and a plurality of shepherds who can watch all of the flock at one time. This is what Moses' father-in-law was, what an instruction he gave him when he was overwhelmed by the vastness of Israel and how to do this. And thankfully, you do have more shepherds than just me here. You don't recognize them as such right now, but they're here. They're doing it. God's called them to do it. He has equipped them to do it. And they're doing it. And you are safer and more protected spiritually because of those men, not one man. But they are giving account for souls, people whom they keep account of following a profession of faith. We're not, we're not giving an account for everybody. We're giving an account for only those whom he's put in our care that we recognize because they have given a profession of faith in Christ. And their life proves credible to such. They have displayed by word and deed that they belong to the body. Acts 2.41 Look at how the early church recognized these people. So they were received, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How do they know that? They counted them. <laughs> That's the simple answer. They, they knew. They knew the number. They knew who they were going to give an account for. And then later on in 247, they were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They know who's coming in. They know who's going out. Think about Acts 6. When they gather together, 
to uh, solve this problem with the feeding and the providing for the widows? How do they know who the widows are? They've counted them. They know them by name, personally. They know who they're dealing with, who's in need. And they have a meeting to deal with those specific needs. Maybe the first church business meeting, Act 6. It went well. (laughs) They solved their problem. So the early church is keeping records, accounts of who they're responsible for. Jonathan Lehman, who writes a lot on this stuff, says this. Church membership is, number one, a covenant of union between a particular church and a Christian. A covenant that consists of a few things. The church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession, the church's promise to give oversight to the Christian, and the Christian's promise to gather with the church and submit to its oversight in following with Hebrews 13, 17. This is how we know. This is what we do. And so again, he says, Christians don't don't join churches, they submit to them. You ever think about the language we use? Sometimes it's language we should use. You join a gym, you join a golf course, you join a book club, you join a library, you don't join a church. You're grafted in by Jesus and you submit to its care and authority over your life. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, because this is case in point of how this plays out. I won't read to you the whole thing. But what happens is they've, they've got this man in their midst who has taken his father's wife as kind of his own. That's odd. <laughs> and so Paul is instructing them, what are you doing? You're delivered the, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're supposed to Um, instruct him, admonish him in his failure. Well, how do they know? Who is this? There's a lot of people that are probably doing this. Why this one man? Well, because he's of them. He's in their midst. And so at the end here, it's really important, in verse 12, says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. How do they know who to judge? Help, admonish, correct. How do they know? Because somehow, in some way, there's been some sort of formal identification that this person is a brother or sister by the profession of faith and by their way of life and by their expressed desires and the pattern that they live in after those desires that we as a church have recognized them as one of us. The church church discipline, which we spoke on a few weeks ago, assumes to know who is in and who's outside. Because you know who's in. Now, if that sounds exclusive, it, it's because it is. 
How could you be part of Christ's body if you're not one of his? So that's who we bring in. Recognize who's in. Because he's the one that brings them in. Let's look at uh, Matthew 16 and 18. They, they help us a little bit in this. Jesus tells Peter, after Peter's made this profession of faith, right, that he's the son of God, and Jesus tells him, look, I'm going to build my church on this profession. That's how you should read that verse. He's going to build it on that profession. And he says in verse 19 of Matthew 16, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The profession of faith is the marker for who will be in the church Jesus is building. And the keys here are, are the responsibility of the church to recognize that whatever he is bringing in, he has brought in. And whatever he is sending out, he is sending out. When the profession proves illegitimate through some gross, unrepentant immorality, the church is given the power of the keys to act. In Isaiah 22, it talks about these as the keys of David. In Revelation, it talks about Jesus having the keys. These are the keys to the kingdom of God. It's not that we make people come in and out. It's that we're, we're giving the responsibility and the discernment to recognize who he's bringing in and out. As that example in 1 Corinthians 5 told us. And then in Matthew 18, 18, a passage on church discipline, how to deal with unrepentant sin in the people who are called brothers and sisters. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he tells us that he is in our midst when we gather in two or three to make those judgments. So that we're not doing something apart from his will, but we're doing something according to his will. That's what he's helping us to recognize. Like I said, this is not like joining Sam's Club or Costco. You're brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of dark darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's a big deal. You... You are citizens of this domain of darkness. And now you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. More specifically, you're made a part of his body. You can't get much more intimate than that. You, you can't get much more, <laughs> you can't get closer than to be tied to his body. It's amazing. 1 Corinthians 12 talks a lot about this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with who? Christ. If you are in Christ, then you're part of his body. You're a hand, you're a foot, you're an eye, you're an ear, you're something. So if that's the case, if in Christ these things are true, then 1 Corinthians 12, 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
In other words, you can't go to church by yourself. That's not even logical. The church is plural. The church is one singular body, but has many plural members. Just as my hand doesn't know what to reach out and grab unless it has eyes or ears or a nose. It relies on its different parts to fulfill its role, its calling. So it is with us. All of us depend on one another to fulfill our role in the body. And you cannot do it outside of that. You cannot, once a member of his body, exist on your own, just as your feet cannot exist apart from your body. Think about it. You cut off your foot, it doesn't function anymore. This isn't the Adams family where you have that hand that runs around. That's impossible. It has to be tied together. And how's it tied together? In Christ, in a church, a local church. Therefore, Hebrews 10.25 Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's his admonishment there? You can't neglect to meet together. You, you can't make the body disjointed. It has to remain what it is, intact. The unity of the church is of importance because the wholeness of the body of Christ is important. It's blood-bought. And it's risen, Savior, built. So let's ask this question. Why does church membership matter? Well, hopefully you know by now, but let's make it clear. It proclaims the gospel by displaying it. How does it display it? The simple fact that you and I gather, the simple fact that you and I care for each other, the simple fact that you and I uh, admonish one another, the simple fact that you and I look out for each other's spiritual and even physical well-being is evidence that we have been reconciled not only with God, but with one another. Something that became broken in the Garden of Eden. When you read the curses in the Garden of Eden, do you see what he's telling Adam and Eve? He tells Eve, hey, your desire now, because of this brokenness that you brought into the world, is to uh, have mastery over your husband, which is not what I designed. But your sinful desire now is going to be to be, want to be him and lead and rule. And husband, your desire is to going to be, you're, you're probably going to want to act like a tyrant instead of that spiritual leader and protector. Broken relationships with God and with each other. So when you have a church that gathers in the name of Jesus and is unified in that name and is doing things like loving one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, helping one another, giving to one another, what do you have? You, you have the answer to that brokenness. That in Jesus, I can care for you and love you. I have a desire to give for you, to give to you and to protect you. 
and to encourage you in the things of the Lord because that day's coming. And you and I are going to get there. Are we going to get there together? Ephesians 2, 13 through 22. I'll end with this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were, once, who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, that's it. That's what's happening here. So whose care and leadership are you submitting to? You'd be able to answer that. Specifically. Who are they giving account for? I need to be able to answer that specifically. And what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming a reconciliation that was bought with the blood of Jesus, a reconciliation first to God, which is our eternal hope, and then a reconciliation with each other that can be lived out now, which is expected to be lived out now, as he builds his church. And unless we've been reconciled to one another, you can't build a church. Because you have unity on nothing, on arbitrary things, but we have a central focus point, and that is Jesus. And that when people see us, they see him. When people see us taking the Lord's Supper, they see us proclaiming that his death has brought us near to God and we have an eternal hope of what is yet to come through his blood. When they see us baptize somebody, they're seeing us welcome somebody in as they have been buried with Christ and they've been raised in newness of life to follow him all the way to the end. And just in the little things that we do, in the harvest parties, in the little things. We're letting people see or bring them near to the love we have for one another because God first loved us. I don't have the ability or the desire to love you and care for you and give to you like I do unless I know what those things are in their purest form. And those are only in Jesus. So church membership matters because it proclaims the gospel. That's it. And we have to obey that somehow. And it gets formal, and we write names down, and we do church discipline when we need to, because it matters for the gospel.
And so I pray that you would uh, take these moments before we begin to uh, take the supper together and that you would meditate on that and um, you'd reflect on that and that you'd pray about that and then we'll stand or then we'll take the supper together. So pray now.